The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. This film is about the country's most famous anti-slavery activist, Frederick Douglass. It's a film that charts the evolution of his mind and his life through these five speeches given at critical junctures of his life and at critical junctures of the United States history in the 19th century. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I had a chance to speak with Julie Marchese and Sean Babalola about their Emmy-nominated HBO documentary, Frederick Douglass in Five Speeches. As you'll hear, in a previous career, I was a professor of American literature, and I used to teach Frederick Douglass frequently. It was nice to be on the other side this time, learning from Julie and Sean and all their experts, enjoying the tremendous performances of the actors delivering versions of these five speeches. Douglas had a fascinating life, and I do appreciate the focus that we heard from Julie at the top on the development of his mind and on the power of the language in his writings. Julie Marchese has produced and directed several documentaries, often with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., who's featured here, as well as episodes of POV and American Masters. Sean Babalola has been a producer for Nova, the United Shades of America, and Africa Everywhere. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the podcast feed. And now, my conversation with Julie and Sean about Frederick Douglass in Five Speeches. Sean and Julie, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Happy to be here. Same. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Julie, why do you make documentary films? You know, everybody always says the storytelling. I love to storytell. I love to tell stories. And that's true. But I like particularly historical documentary filmmaking. Sometimes you sit around and talk about what's going on in the world with friends and current events and things like that. And it can feel like we don't know anything. We're living in the story. I find those conversations frustrating sometimes. I don't know. My brain just wants to look in the past and try to make sense of what came before us. And that's why I like historical documentary filmmaking. I like to make a story and to understand history with all the information that we have now and to try to weave it and to try to understand something about ourselves today. So yeah, that's sort of a generic answer, you know, storytelling. But I think particularly as a history nerd, there's something really satisfying to me about taking a look at something that we think we know also and giving an, a different take on it and giving a different angle on it and learning more about ourselves. And Sean, why do you make documentaries? It's really interesting to hear Julie talk about history because I'm definitely more of a contemporary character-driven, like verite documentary person. And so I really like making documentaries because they give insight and access and visual references to like lives and situations that we might normally not have access to. And so I think it's a really powerful tool to be able to build trust with someone and that present their story that might clue someone in to an experience that they knew nothing about or present a different side of the story of an issue and change someone's mind. So I'm really drawn to documentaries in that sense, in that context. Let's talk about the origins of this film and having taught Frederick Douglass, typically narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass in classrooms over the years, I know he's a hit. 
So I know Frederick Douglass is a rock star and students really appreciate him and are interested, but I'm trying to imagine the pitch to HBO. Hey, we want to do a film about a 19th century literary figure and we're going to focus on his speeches, right? You can see this this could be challenging. Oh, is there video of the speeches? No, it's the 19th century. Oh, are there photos? Well, yes, but not really on stage. So could you talk about how you positioned this film and why did you know it was going to work so well? And oh God, I definitely did not know. It didn't come to us as the five speeches. We came up with that concept. It came as Here's this book that David Blight wrote, this incredible Pulitzer Prize winning biography. And Skip Gates, who I've known for many years, was just eager to make a film based on it. And when HBO got on board, it felt like, well, this can't be a straight cradle to grave biography because they don't really do that kind of thing. We have to find an edge. We have to find an angle. We have to find a way to make this fresh and edgy. Sean and I, just in talking, kind of came up with this concept, which is let's look at these speeches. And that gives you an sort of opportunity to do something a little different with the medium and not just have talking heads tell us about Frederick Douglass, but have actors, have performers embody him. This is a great biography. I sometimes struggle with the biographies, but according to the bookmark, I made it to page 734. Nice going. It's a long uh, uh, it, it is a really wonderful biography. I recommend it tremendously. Uh, side note to you folks, when I met Dr. Gates many years ago, I was still a grad student and he, you know, he's so open and generous and he's just like, oh, you know, introduce himself as Skip. And I just could not bring myself to come I up Skip. Know. <laughs> <laughs> just... work with him. He insists on it. And this is like my 10th project with him. It's Shown's first, but I think she has no problem calling him Skip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a terrific person and a great scholar. Probably people don't read a lot of literary analysis and so forth, but he has a couple of books that are really accessible, The Signifying Monkey and Figures in Black being two of them. And if you are interested in the literature from this period, and especially African-American literature from this period, you could do worse than checking out Dr. Gates' books. All right. So we love to talk about beginnings of documentary films. You sort of have two. So let me set them up and we'll talk about each of them. The first beginning, we have an actor, Jonathan Majors. I don't think he's identified as such yet, but comes into focus. He's dressed very casually in a blue hoodie, facing the camera nondescript brick wall behind him. And he says, I have no love for America. He does not have patriotism, that the institutions of the country do not recognize him as a man, only as a piece of property. And only then do we get a title card that says, Frederick Douglass, New York City, May 1847. Why did you want to start here? Well, we were probably going to be jarring Honestly, when you see Jonathan Majors in the hoodie and in this type of setting, it sounds like he could be speaking about his own thoughts, his own feelings in the context of what's going on right now, especially, you know, with the Black Lives Matter and with everything that's going on. And then realizing that actually it's not even his words, it's Frederick Douglass's, and that these themes are still happening. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. So this is a person that was very vocal in the injustices of what was going on at that time. And not only were they very vocal, it's extremely still relevant today. So I think that just throwing people into that reality, I think was a great way to start the film. I totally agree. I think the question of patriotism, the idea of patriotism is a really interesting one. And it's one that's come up a lot, you know, with Colin Kaepernick's protests in 2010s. And I think that's a very bold statement. <laughs> and as Sean says, I think we struggled with whether or not people would understand what's going on. You know, you can't give too much of a speech before giving some context and understanding what this film is. And we played around with a different speech, the, the Denzel Whitaker, his actual first speech, Douglas's actual first speech. But 
we just felt like you wouldn't grasp onto what was going on enough. And we wanted to save that. You have to build the context of here he is standing on stage for the first time. Jonathan gave, I think, probably our most powerful performance. So we stole a little bit from that. And as you see, he comes back later, different parts of the speech appear again. But we just said, let's take a moment and just bring people in. And so also they know this is a different kind of film. This is not mm-hmm. a Douglas was born in. This is a different kind of film. And he does do a wonderful job. All the actors here have these tremendous performances of the speeches. And we'll talk more about that. The second opening, we see Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. I don't think, again, he's identified immediately. He's seated facing the camera. And he does something that I found myself often doing when I was teaching 19th century American literature, which is trying to get your audience into the shoes of the person speaking. Imagine, he says, that you had to dispel doubts about your full humanity every time you took the stage. Imagine that you had to refute doubts about your own native ability every time you picked up a pen. Imagine having to fight to show that you were as complicated a human as any being who ever walked the earth. And as you have this nice three-part imagination exercise, you show photos of Douglas, generally oriented the same, he's facing the same direction. There are these headshots as studio photos were typically in that period. They're very similar, but he's slowly growing old, first and quite young, that a touch of gray, and then clearly an older gentleman. And then you settle on a photo of Douglas at his peak and the orientations of the direction. And he's looking right into the camera and the look in his eyes is, can you talk about this beginning? Yeah. I mean, those photos are great, right? There's 150 of them. And there are certain ones where he's looking straight at you and they are incredible. And that was very purposeful on his part. Look, Skip Gates has made a lot of films and in a lot of his films, he's a host. He's telling you something from a kind of educator perspective. I felt when I interviewed him about Douglas that this was personal. The way he talks about Douglas is the struggles of a Black man trying to be seen as a human. And you feel Skip really feeling that. When I heard those lines, I think I even teared up in that interview at some point. (laughs) I did. I'm not at that point, but a different point. I loved him putting himself in those shoes and saying, imagine, imagine, imagine. And I just felt like he was giving an emotion in that moment. And then to see Douglas's sort of fiery gaze, it just, you know, as I said, those pictures are invaluable. And Douglas knew what he was doing when he was taking those pictures. Again, I think the provocation in those pictures and similar to the major's beginning, we wanted to create that provocative beginning. I think there's also a provocation in asking people to put themselves in Douglas's shoes as well. You can talk at people and throw concepts at them, but actually forcing them to contextualize and actually say, okay, imagine yourself in this position. I think everything is just demanding people to see from this perspective. In part one, I have come to tell you something about slavery, which I just love because it's very kind of those understated ways that Douglas would start some of his speaks. Let me just tell you a little something. <laughs> You're going to get something. You're going to hear something. And Andre Holland he does a beautiful job. He reads from the autobiographies, which I think Douglas published three fully formed autobiographies in yeah, his life. Three. And I think it's interesting what you choose to talk about and what you don't choose to talk about. So just let me give you an example of something that typically is covered when you talk about Douglas. One of them might be his struggles with Covey. Douglas's master, Ald, had lent him to Covey. And I apologize for the dehumanizing language here, folks, but this is what 19th century American slavery was about. There's no way to ignore it. He fights off Covey, and this is often seen as a very important moment of his kind of burgeoning freedom. This is his first step towards freedom is fighting off Covey. You don't discuss this at all. Instead, you really focus on his learning as the path to freedom. Can you talk about these choices? Obviously, his life is very rich. It's a lot you cover, but you pick the, the focus on the writing rather than something like fighting off Covey. Yeah, I mean, we had we had Covey. <laughs> Covey had, yeah, the Covey fight was 
a big discussion. <laughs> I mean, we built that scene and I, there's a lot of discussion about it because it is certainly a big part of why he chose to escape. And it is a part of the creation of who he became in a physical sense, just sort of literally throwing off his slave owner. But ultimately we, because this was focusing on his speeches, his writing, his mind, we went with the education part of it and to keep on that lane, just to condense the story a bit. Again, we couldn't make this a cradle to grave. We could not cover every, there's so many interesting parts of his life we didn't cover. And so as crucial as that story is, and believe me, David Blight and Skip Gates both said, where is Covey, where is Covey? Filmmaking is about making those hard choices. And we just felt like it slowed the story down too much. And we really wanted to get him to the North to when he really became who he became. Sean, could you talk about the importance of him learning to read and write? Like just the fact that it was, you just couldn't even teach any of these enslaved people to read and write because they would become too powerful. And the enormity of that just concept of an education, I think there's just so many layers to it. Him learning to read and write is just, I'm trying to put it into words, honestly, because the gravity of it, of being so young, being able to see so much of what's around him, read the documents of when he's learning about the conversations in the North and just all of those things, seeing that there's possibility for himself and options for himself outside of being this person who is owned by other people. It really is a root. It's a seed that was planted. And it really was the seed that opened up everything for him. I think your film is about that, the power of language, right? The power of speaking, the power of writing. And the power of speaking from your own perspective and your own voice and having the option to express yourself and be heard, that's enormous. So when basically stops his wife from continuing to teach Douglas, you do something interesting here. And I want to talk about some of the graphical treatment montages. So you show, as Covey's basically say, here's why you don't want to teach him to read and write. It's unlawful. It's unsafe. It's unmanageable. No value. These words sank deep into my heart. And what you do here is you show these words and you see the parallelism of unlawful, unsafe, unmanageable, then no value. That's another unvaluable and no value. It's a little bit of a turn. And then the final, these words sank deep into my heart. And I love this because it really brings out that writing. And it really, it's like a little lesson on how to write well too, right? I mean, one of the things I love about teaching Douglas is he's such a great writer that you, what I and our family, my three teenage sons, we read Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And I talked as much about what's going on in the book. I talked as much about the way he structured it and his writing style. It's really powerful. Can you talk about what you were trying to accomplish here? We had these incredible animators out of the UK. They specialize in kind of taking archival imagery and paste sort of collage style animations. They're just really geniuses at creating these worlds. We knew we wanted to do a lot on paper, showing literal writing and a kid learning. I'm a word nerd, so I love seeing words on screen. And so, yeah, the idea of him processing these words and realizing, oh, wow, if I don't have value, that's that, give me more of that, that reading, right? I don't want to be valuable to this guy. I, I want to escape and, and this is my path. And so I think the animators were great at showing revelation through animation. And so that's one of my favorite pieces. I think, Sean, we both agree. When it goes into his mind and you see the flourishing of the boy's mind, that's just an amazing visual representation of what it must be like to be already a child who has some genetic gift because he must have, right? He was not taught by any school. He must have had a genetic gift for language. So to see that visually sort of blossom in his head, it's one of my favorite moments in the whole film. There's also something about it where I love that the animation, it's we're obviously trying to show this visual 
version of what Douglas was experiencing. But I also like that it's applicable to kind of anyone in that situation. It feels like that boy could be anybody, any person, any enslaved person experiencing this. So that's why I also love it. Also, sometimes I think there's some extra information or even Easter eggs a little bit in the animations. One of the reasons that Douglas was so ready to speak when he finally started speaking was he actually had been studying speeches. He was reading the Colombian orator. And so he was ready to go. He also, as a young man, practiced speechifying and really preaching in some ways with his friends. So he had some experience even teaching his friends about this. And you have in one of the animations, the Colombian orator flies in for a second there and you can see it there. And I thought, oh, somebody's paying careful attention. That might be, what's this? And Hey, Siri, what's the Colombian orator? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that you, again, all the details we couldn't fit in the film, you try to squeeze in somehow. I even bought that book and read it. I don't know why, just to understand what he was reading. But I knew we wouldn't be able to cover that. But of course, as Blay will say, the Bible was everything. And that's a lot of what he was reading and processing. And a lot of biblical references make it into his speeches. We should get to the first speech. Douglas escapes Maryland by posing a sailor. He lands in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And... He hears the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison is holding a convention and he goes there and they just invite him to speak and he just speaks off the cuff, apparently. Maybe he was ready to speak, maybe not. And Denzel Whitaker, uh, again, casually dressed, delivers this speech. He talks about his embarrassment to speak to white people. It makes him tremble. Abolitionists sure seem to know a lot about slavery, but they cannot speak as I can, he says. What does he mean by that? It's conceptual versus the actual experience of it. That was a part of his power. You can talk so much about abolition and what you think is right and wrong, but Douglas is coming from this experience. He talks about the scars on his back. He talks about the people next to him experiencing all of these horrible tragedies. And that's really just, how can you even stand in front of people who look like the people that were enslaving you and just <laughs> speak to your experiences like that? It's incredible. The way we tell that story, and as Skip will often point out, like it's a little apocryphal. He didn't just come out of nowhere, right? Like he had been giving speeches. He knew what he was doing. You know, I think he himself liked to say he didn't to, to disarm the audience. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I'm so scared. But I think by that point, even though he was only 23, he knew what he was doing up there. It was all part of his, <laughs> part of his act in a way. And you had to, you know, bring the people in and then kind of drop the bomb on them which is one of his uh, great structures. We'll talk more about that in his famous speech in a bit. And after this kind of shortened version of the speech is delivered, Denzel, seated, speaks about his own impressions. And this surprised me a little bit to see the actor talking directly to us. It surprised me in a good way, I want to say. And he talks a bit about, he understands why he might've been scared. He talks about how Douglas eventually reached this state of what I think called soul transcendent, which I really loved. Can you talk about this choice of having the actors share their impressions of the speech? It was something that we... Weren't sure what we wanted to do with it initially, but we were saying, okay, you know what? It would be nice though to hear the actor perspective of saying these speeches because we are focusing on his words so much and what they mean. And it would be interesting. Okay, what is your approach to this? How did this make you feel when you were saying it? And I don't think we knew if we were actually going to use it in the end, but HBO thought that it was actually really important and they thought it would be great to add to the film. And I think... It adds just another piece of the puzzle, another perspective to it. And just as a sort of a filmmaking insider pacing thing, I think the film is very tight and tense. And I think it gives you a little bit of a moment to step back and get some modern day perspective on what we're looking at. It's sort of a space to breathe. I resisted it at first because I love the performances so much. And sometimes when you go take down the third wall, you've kind of lost. I worried about losing the power of the performance. 
But look, I mean, these actors agreed to do this for a reason. And so we kind of wanted to know why. We wanted to know what these words meant to them. And again, give it a modern angle. His speech is a resounding success. And William Lloyd Garrison asked him to go on the circuit. Um, and by the way, this is extremely dangerous what he's doing. At any moment, he can be captured and brought back into slavery. And he's just putting himself out there I and mean, going on the circuit and traveling. Blight tells all these stories about being run out of town in various places. You make friends, but you make some enemies too when you do this. So he's not totally comfortable with the Garrisonians. You know, they want him to play a certain role. Just tell us the truth. Just be the you know speaker of truth and authenticity only, please. And then in 1845, he publishes one of his great works, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And this only pushes him further from Garrison. Can you talk a little bit about this fraught relationship? I think Skip des describes it as sort of a father-son thing early on. And I think there's some part of that where Garrison was his mentor. But as Sean was saying, I think he just felt like, no, this is my experience. You know, I have things that I can say that are more true than what you're saying. As good as your movement is, I have, a, a, I think, a more powerful message. What I think is interesting about this is that pretty much every movement, every organization, every group of activists confront this challenge of people splintering off and having different ideas about how to achieve their goals and egos get involved. So I think that's exactly what happened here. As we say in the film, or Blight says, he did have an ego and he felt like he was the best person to <laughs> disseminate this message. And so he created a newspaper and he broke from them. Yeah, I don't think it's uncommon in the activist business. And I don't even think it's just activism. Honestly, I think, especially coming as another storyteller who is Black, I just feel like it's in terms of autonomy and just being able to voice yourself in the way that you want to, because they were asking him to speak a certain way and express himself in a certain way. And it's just like, no, I should be able to do this my way. And so I think that was another aspect to it that, you know, still, still actually happens. And to that point, he heads to Great Britain for a few years and speaks there quite a bit. He's making his living, but also it's kind of cooling off from what's happened in the U.S. And this really changes him. Professor Gates reflects on his own personal experience, similar experiences. That was a powerful moment, too. Again, I think Skip Gates made it personal because he related. And I think that was a great moment to understand, again, the timelessness of these issues. It's interesting the way Douglas talks about that, because I think he gives the impression that there's no racism outside of America, which is strange. But I mean, certainly in terms of slavery, it was a different time. I think it's just the gravity of what he was coming from versus what he was experiencing. And that's just a vast difference. But yeah, it does sound like he's saying like, no, everything was fine in Europe. Clearly not. But he does come home much more militant, I think is the term. He's really decided that the Garrisonian approach of slow incremental change isn't going to take. And this leads into our second speech, Country, Conscience, and the Anti-Slavery Cause from 1847. As we said, Jonathan Majors performs a speech. One of the focuses of the speech is, hey, I know I'm irritating you Americans, but you deserve to be irritated. Jonathan Majors comments afterwards that it really hit home this one line where Douglas is talking about what slaveholders do to Black Americans, crushing them to the earth. And he says, that's Brother Floyd. One of the things that I really loved that thematically kept popping up is just how relevant Douglas's words still are. And I think that's just something that people need to be reminded of and that we still have a lot of work to do. So when Jonathan Majors said that, it really hit the nail on the head because just like these are not things that we can just, you know, aside and say, oh, slavery was over. We're still dealing with it. We're still grappling with it. But I think it was a wonderful choice for him to wear a hoodie as well, because, you know, it's also a nod to like Trayvon Martin. It's a nod to all of the 
people who are still being crushed to the earth, both physically and figuratively. It's easy for us to celebrate Douglas's anger when he's 37 in the middle of the 19th century. I think we don't really like anger. <laughs> we don't like contemporary activist anger. It, it makes us all uncomfortable. Oh. So it's interesting to see how fiery he was, how angry and how willing he was to just call out the entire white population of the United States and how we say, oh, wasn't Douglas a great guy? And today we have such discomfort with that anger. You know, I, I, people discount King's anger too, right? I think there's this gauzy film that we put on these men, but they were, they were angry. Yeah. That was also something we talked a lot about. Yeah. <laughs> and Douglas's wife, Anna, to whom he was married for 44 years, appears very infrequently in his writing. Douglas's wife, Anna, to whom he was married for 44 years, appears very infrequently in his writing. Can you talk about how you chose to handle this delicate, honestly difficult you know, part of his life? Can you talk about how you chose to handle this delicate, honestly difficult part of his life? To be honest, I wish that we had more time. I think that's our regret is that we could have gone into that in greater detail and really understood what it was like to be Anna Douglas and the position that she was in. There's an amazing book of poems written from the perspective of Anna Douglas. And we have the poet in the film, yeah. Professor Zadi Kita. I thought it was such an amazing poetic experiment to sort of channel this woman's words and thoughts in, in poetry. We really wanted to use these poems, and, and, but of course we didn't have time. So we end up sort of giving this truncated version of just sort of who this woman was, the position she was in, the fact that she was not able to read or write is very significant about her life and the very complicated relationship that she and Douglas must have had. We tried to sort of allude to that and give her some humanity that's probably been, you know, I think she's definitely been ignored in the annals of history. I think it's also interesting to bring up just the erasure of a lot of Black women throughout history, especially the wives and the family members who've helped some of these great people become who they were. And so it was really important to give Anna that shine because she was there alongside him for a very long time. And, you know, bookkeeping, taking care of the kids, doing a lot of things. For me, I was just like, no, we have to include Anna. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there would be no Douglas without her. Right. We would not know this man without her. And that's hard to communicate. It's hard to make people understand that. I know you have limited time. I'm glad you brought her in. He's still a young man. Douglas falls into a pretty deep and lengthy depression, but he still managed to do some of his best work. What to the Slave is Fourth of July. Here's performed by Nicole Bahari. And Professor Gates calls this the masterpiece of the abolitionist movement. And it's hard to argue with that. So you structured this one a little bit differently. Let me spell this out just a little bit, which is David Blight talks about three movements and you have him introduce each and to state them a little bit glibly, the buttering up, the storm and hope renewed is how I think about them. Nicole Bahari then performs each in turn and the camera work and the editing in this particular instance seems a little more intense. I thought I saw more Dutch angles and other shots and editing cuts. I have to say that some of the editing is, you know, okay, another insider, a filmmaker thing. We shot that in a very, very loud warehouse. All of them were shot in warehouses, which are not the best for audio. So yeah, I know. That, those things were, I don't think we got that entire speech cleanly. We had to cut around a lot of noise. So I probably ended up making it look more <laughs> interesting from an editing perspective than we might've intended. But yeah, I think it worked. And Nicole is so great. I don't know. I just said Jonathan was one of our most powerful. I also think Nicole is one of our most powerful. I love the performance that she gave. And I love the way that she spoke because I just felt like there was, again, this modern take on these words. We could have had 
Denzel or Lawrence Fishburne or some older Black man giving these words. And it would have been like maybe the way Douglas had done it. But to have a young woman do it, and that was, by the way, Shaun's completely the Shaun's idea. It just elevated the whole thing for me. I love what she does right at the very beginning before she says, he who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has stronger nerves than I. She pauses and it's, the pause is perfect. She's a phenomenal she, actress. Oh my gosh, so good. Yeah. And it's interesting though, because we went back and forth between, should we just let her go, let it fly? Or should we like intercut this with Blight explaining it? But I do love that he gives us that context, that understanding of, no, you have to understand how brilliant this speech is. So let me explain, let me break it down for you. Blight's thing is the symphony and the movements. I think he made that up, but I think it's so accurate. By the way, that speech is like 50 pages, but the way that he writes it is completely, you know, structurally, it's incredible. The one thing I will say is that there's less, there's less hope at the end of that speech than one might think or want, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, so you sort of end with hope, it ends with like more challenging though, really. Once the Civil War starts, and a war that Douglas really, by that point, felt was the only means to end slavery and save America's soul, Douglas is really focusing on getting African-American men to fight. And this is the heart of the next speech that you provide, the Proclamation and a Negro Army of 1863. Coleman Domingo, just the powerful stillness. He just stands so still. It's almost like he's this unmovable object that will, you know, and you get that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really creates the tension in the scene, I think. Can you explain why was this so important to Douglas to get Black Ben into the army? This, to me, Coleman's demeanor does mark this new era of hope, actually, of like, okay, here we are. We have the war. This is it, you know? And so I think the anger is dissipated a little bit. Now there's like energy and hope. And he's as still as he is, I think there's a self-possession, like, all right, now I'm kind of moving from activist to politician is what he becomes. And in this moment, he recognizes this amazing opportunity for Black men to fight and how necessary it is to win this war. And this is when he meets Lincoln and everything changes. But he recognizes it, as we say, from the very beginning that this was it. This was the opportunity for everything he'd been fighting for to finally happen. And one thing we don't mention, which I really do regret, is that Douglas was too old to fight, but his two sons did. That's significant. This man was walking the walk. He was his own children were in this war. After the war, Douglas is worried that he will no longer be needed. He serves in the government. He's even, I think, minister to Haiti. But as Professor Gates notes, he won't have to wait for long to be relevant again. Can you just give us a little bit of the background? What's happening when he delivers this kind of final speech you give in 1884? Lessons of the Hour, that is a speech that is given at the height or coming height of the lynching crisis in America. This is post-Reconstruction, post-so-called redemption. The South has really taken back the, <laughs> their country. The hopes and dreams of the Reconstruction era have been dashed. Again, we don't have time to talk about the incredible activist Ida B. Wells, but she's the one who takes up the mantle for lynching. And she's the one who gets Douglas involved and says, you've got to get out there and start talking about this. He's this elder statesman, you know, had settled into somewhat of a comfortable life, but he can't ignore this. He can't ignore the virtual reenslavement of his people. And so that's what brings him back out on the speech-making circuit. And Jeffrey Wright is the performer here. And I probably don't need to say that his understated performance just absolutely captures the mixture of yes, anger, but also sadness and exhaustion that we can hear here. I didn't really know the speech. This is not one that I knew, but I was really struck by this and how different it is from his earlier writings, you know, like friends and fellow citizens, strange things have happened and all these images of the vultures. It's really this 
like apocalyptic landscape. It's very different from the earlier ones. The thing that I love about the way the speeches are presented in this film is that it really showcases Douglas as a real human being that is deeply affected. He's more than an icon. He's a man that is tired. He's tired and he can get pessimistic and he can get depressed. This last speech is just like, I'm on my deathbed, essentially. <laughs> and I'm tired, but I'm still going to try and do what I can because it's dire. So I just love that the way it's painted, the way it's performed, and the images that go along with it really paint that picture. When we first had this idea to use these actors, I had thought, okay, great, we'll get an actor at his rough age at each speech, at each time each speech. And we didn't end up really doing, we kind of did that. Obviously, Jeffrey Wright is not as old as he was when he gave that final speech. But it was important to me that you saw an evolution of a man. We were talking about the anger from majors and then Coleman is a little more understated. And by the time you get to Jeffrey, at that point, Douglas is in his 70s. As Sean said, he's tired and you can hear it. And he's got a different perspective. He's still trying to fight, but he's finding it hard to keep up that resistance and keep up that hope. I think we could talk about legacy. I'd like to hear you both speak about Douglas's legacy. Jeffrey Wright brings this up. He says, how can we not know him, whether we're black, white, immigrant, whatever, like just the need to know Douglas. What's your sense of Douglas's importance and legacy for us today? To speak up, I can only speak from my perspective of what I think his legacy is. And I feel like there's so much fear and it's not like it's unfounded. There's a lot of things to be scared of, but I think the fearlessness that Douglas exhibited just in terms of putting his life on, like he could have gotten captured any moment when doing his tours, regardless of that, he was still energized and he still knew that he could make a difference with his words. And that's a legacy that I think that needs to continue and follow through because people really do need to continue to speak up and speak about what's wrong. Or Julie was saying earlier that we're scared of anger. <laughs> And people with anger are seen as too passionate and too, you know, you're getting too intense. No, we still need that fire. Or as you say, this, the storm, the whirlwind and the earthquake, we need all of those things to exhibit this change. And so that's what I'm hoping that will continue to pass forward. I would say his legacy is what he said, but it's really how he said it. And unfortunately, that's not something anybody can do. He had this unnatural skill with writing and words. And so it's hard to say, yeah, just go speak up. Because the way he did it, he made people think, he made people laugh. One of the things we couldn't really do is he was kind of a funny guy. You know, he found, and I don't want to say this in a sinister way, but he found ways to manipulate people's minds a little bit. He got up there and he made them feel comfortable. He brought them in and they taught them something. And I think that art is lost a little bit. We don't have speech making today. Everything's on Twitter or in sound bites or, you know, op-eds and things. But I think his legacy is this tremendous way with words and how powerful that can be. And for people to pursue that kind of excellence in writing and expression, because this was a man who had no education, taught himself completely. And it's just incredible to see what he did with it. I do see him as like an artist, as a creative, in addition to an activist. And to me, that's an important part of his legacy as well. Absolutely. And I think your film completely captures that. Professor Gates says, this isn't just a work of advocacy. It, it's a work of art. It's an act of language. Exactly. And you really captured mm -hmm. that too. I think we both are gratified by the attention that the film has gotten. We didn't know what it would become. I, it was hard to make. And there's a lot of uncertainty about yeah. how to do this. During the pandemic, no less, this was a film made entirely on Zoom, essentially. But even those interviews were shot on Zoom. We're just gratified that people are watching it. 
you never know how much appetite there is for a biography of a 19th century person. <laughs> and so it's nice to know that it's getting some recognition. Really appreciate it. I recognize the pragmatic nature of these, you know, individual setups, one person in front of a either a true yep. warehouse or a screen. But I'll say that I thought that really worked because you really get the sense of Douglas out there taking a stand. So I think that actually worked in your favor in this case. Good, good. Nice to hear. Did either of you want to share anything else you're working on that's forthcoming? I'm working on something that's in development on psychotherapy. That'll be interesting. Other yeah. 19th century? Not 19th century. All right. You know, but it goes into the history of psychotherapy a little bit. That's another interesting field. I'm in yeah. development for a few things that I'm writing, directing, but I do have a nonprofit named Cinema Inc. And I launched a short film grant this year for Black filmmakers to make short films. So I'm awarding the Ford grantees this fall and I'm going to continue to do it to, you know, widen the pool of Black directors, writers, and producers. That's great. Is there a website for that? Sure. It's www.cosinema.org and it's called the Cinema Short Film Grant. Congratulations on the film and congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Frederick Douglass is without doubt one of our greatest writers, one of our greatest advocates, and you've made a film worthy of his legacy. If I were still teaching, I would definitely assign this. I was a picky assigner. I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to check it out. It's an hour well spent. You're gonna learn something, but I think also you're going to be inspired by Douglass's, yes, his stance, his bravery, but just his words, the beauty of his words and the performances, these wonderful performances by these actors. So just go check it out again. It's an hour that you're not going to regret having spent with Mr. Douglas. Appreciate it. Thank you. I normally wear a collared shirt, but I wore my blue hoodie. And, no worries. Um, in celebration of Jonathan Majors. Uh, oh, good. Okay. I, I love that. <laughs> that I was like, oh, I got a blue hoodie. <laughs> I don't yeah, look quite works. as good. I love it. <laughs> I'd love to hear if you both have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention that is deserves shown. I'll start with you. It's a documentary named Dear Zachary. And I don't know if it's exactly a hidden gem, but... I feel like more people need to see it because the editing and the storytelling is just really fantastic in that film. A lot of twisted turns. <laughs> and Julie, how about you? This is a more recent film and I don't know if it's hidden, it's somewhat hidden. It came out in Tribeca just this year and I have to say one of my friends edited it, but it's called Battleground. When I saw it, I was like, cause I actually was watching rough cuts of that film even before. So I just was like blown away by that story about anti-abortion activists and how they've been on the ground for this entire decade, somewhat under the radar. So yeah, I really, just in terms of the content of that film, I have to recommend everybody watch it.